A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Formula Once Upon a Time with me, Norman Hall, and my good friend, Roberto Boccafogli. In this edition, we're talking to Eddie Jordan, a former team owner, and now one of the leading Formula One commentators. Like Roberto and I, Eddie is a big music fan. And before we started talking about Formula One, we had a chat about music, and suddenly, Eddie brought out a set of spoons. Are we all getting high on our own supply here? Let me uh, do something. <laughs> <laughs> when the um, Irish... Uh, because the Spanish, they all think they're flamenco and they think that the castanets are all of it. It's not true. I'm going to give you what it's like to be music. <laughs> You've got to do it on your hands, look. So that's what you need to practice. Beautiful. So you don't need expensive guitars. Okay. Rock and roll. So having witnessed Eddie's great prowess on the spoons, here we are, old friends. Uh, a little bit distanced for obvious reasons. I'm in, um, I'm in Brighton, Roberto's in Milan, and Eddie's in London. But it is old friends, ready to talk about old times. Here we go. Old friends, always the best. Nice to see you guys. Ciao, guys. And nice to see you, Eddie. You're looking trim and fit and uh, very trendy in your T-shirt. How are you doing these days? Um, well, you know, we've had a really amazing last couple of months, really, when we think about what has happened. But in my particular case, I've been extremely fortunate because I think um, I did things that I had never thought I would do before, and that is uh, spend, be locked up with my wife for four months. I mean, that was a, a miracle for me to, for, for she to survive it, but actually I enjoyed it so much. And I think there was a lot of things that came out of the virus uh, that were good. Of course, there was a huge amount of bad, uh, but hopefully we're over the worst of it now and we can find vaccines, we can find ways of living normally again soon. And um, so it's one of those things we will always remember. Eddie, I'm, I'm looking at, um, just behind you, you've got the, the, the three monkeys, see no evil, hear no evil, say no evil. And, uh, <laughs> and I always think of you as someone who... Uh, Instead, enjoys a little bit of uh, a bit of uh, hearing and seeing and talking. Not quite evil, but uh, enjoying the cut and thrust of Formula One. Can you tell us a little bit how do you how did you get into Formula One in the first place? Um, well, there was a couple of uh, reasons. I mean, I was in the junior formulas, which I probably dare I say uh, to all you 
F1 aficionados. I, I actually enjoyed my time in Formula 3 and 3000. And the reason for it was easier to be closer to the action, closer to the drivers, did a little bit of engineering, did a little bit of management. So uh, it was... a. Uh, a highlight, but the person who actually convinced me more than ever at that stage, I suppose in 1987, it all kicked off with winning the championship with Johnny Herbert uh, and then Martin Donnelly in, in Formula 3000. And of course, in 1989, um, I had a, a, a Sicilian guy who claims to be Italian but was brought up in Avignon, which is Jean Alessi. And more than anyone else, I owe him a lot because he was the guy when I sold him for one race to replace Michele Alboreto at the French Grand Prix in 1989. Uh, he drove at Tyrrell. Tyrrell convinced me that he would struggle to qualify uh, and that he needed to learn a lot from Jonathan Palmer, his teammate at the time. And I said, listen, Ken, I think you got a, a wrong angle on this because I will be surprised if, um, if Jean doesn't surprise a lot of people which in fact he did, and his very first race, no testing in the car, finished fourth, qualified seventh or eighth. He was absolutely brilliant. And he came back to me and he said, Eddie, I, I need you to explain one thing. And I said, okay, John, thank you, and you've got your money, and they want you to drive for you now, but I've told them, because I thought he was going to be upset with me. I wouldn't allow him to leave Jordan. I need to win the Formula 3000 championship at the time, and which he did. Uh, and he said to me something that was very clear to this day, I'll never forget it. He said, Eddie, never, ever not believe that you can do exactly the same as those teams in Formula One. How you structure, how you position the technology, the people you have in the team, you have a very, very cool base. And all you need to do is enlarge on that base with the confidence and total belief you can do what they do. And so, Jean Alessi, hats off to you. I, I owe him a lot. That's how it happened. That's how I went to Formula One then in 90. 1990, he built a car with Gary Anderson. I was doing Formula 3000 at the same time. Gary had two people. Can you imagine three people designed that car? Only three. Now there's like about 300 people, which is just seems obscene to me. But nevertheless, we were always cheapskates. Uh, everybody knows that, so I'm not telling anyone that they don't know it. Um, the fact is that um, Gary built probably one of the most beautiful cars um, that I've seen. Of course, I'm naturally biased, but the Jordan 91 car, the first car that we built, particularly the green color, the Irish color, the 7-up color, it was magic. And um, so a lot of great names, a lot of people that I owe an awful lot to in that. And Gary was the most practical person I have ever in my life come across. He could do anything. He, he, not alone could he do it himself with his hands, but he could design it, he could draw it, he could make it, and he could make it quick. Eddie. Today, Formula One would uh, nearly desperately need some new teams, even little teams coming and so on, because you know that uh, if Williams gets out or if uh, Zauber gets out, it's very bad for Formula One today. But uh, then it was possible, you were not a small team because you were winning very much in Formula Two and Formula Three, and then you came and you did what we know. But uh, today, why is that so difficult for a small team to even think to come to Formula One. What's lacking today? Well, um, there are a number of things uh, I believe lacking. Um, and I'm not saying that the current formula is worse or better than what it was. I think it's just very different. 
Um, and we talk about luck, and I, I will say this at the very start of the program, um, I'm not sure there's many people luckier than me. I've had a very good set of cards dealt to me in my hand most of the time. So from that point of view, um, you know, when I came to 91 and... Uh, and I, I showed the car to the press at the end of 1990. Um, uh, I, I distinctly remember the journalists coming to, to, to Silverstone to see the car. And, and I remember one of the headlines, which was in Otto Hebdo, which really hurt me. And it says, a very lovely car, shame it will never happen. And, you know, I'm a very determined guy. I was very lucky that I came into the sport late because I had studied and uh, accountancy and obviously banking. And so I had a very good financial knowledge of where to structure spreadsheets, not spending more than what, as Bernie always said, everybody in Formula One spend more than they ever can get. Um, and that's always a bad recipe. So Formula One then was before the television thing, you had to find your own money. And I was quite good at that. I mean, finding 7-Up, finding... Um, I got money from the Irish government, I got money from Fiji, and then it rolled on into other different sponsors. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure nowadays. Uh, another very important factor, we were very lucky in the early days um, of Formula One to have people like Enzo Ferrari, and then we had Frank Williams and Ken Tyrrell, and we had the, the Jackie Stewart to a smaller extent in his own team, but you had the Ron Dennis's and, and, and et cetera, and, and Peter Sauber, myself. And we were all owner-drivers. In other words, we had our own truck, and we brought the truck to the, the circuit, and we did it. Now it's, it's high-powered chief executives, um, management structure, very corporate, very different. Uh, so it's very difficult to compare the two different formats of racing. In my case, I couldn't have survived now. Uh, it just happened to be particularly appropriate for me because I'm a ducker and a diver. I will go and promise somebody uh, amazing coverage in terms of TV, in terms of uh, media, press coverage. I've, I had a, a saying that I will always deliver 10 times value. So if I got a million pounds from your sponsor, I would give you 10, 10 million pounds worth of advertising globally. And we would calculate that and we would show how that would benefit. And that was one of the key things that Jordan had. We were able to get a disproportionate amount of coverage for the actual quality or the success that we had. And you could say maybe it's the different color, maybe it was the rock and roll, maybe it was the girls on the grid, maybe it was this, maybe it was anything. But it was a different set of parameters that you couldn't have now. And therefore, I don't believe I could survive now. So the second part of that question was, why is it? Is there not? There must be some people there who are doing Formula Three and Three Thousand. Some really um, great teams. I mean, I remember talking to Drio, who own Dams, and they're so super successful. And, and you know, Jean Paul has the money uh, himself to get to Kickstarters because that's what I needed to do. I had made some money in the Formula Three and Formula Three Thousand, and I had uh, maybe eight, ten drivers in Japan, all managed by me, earning decent money. Uh, driving in the Formula 2 championship. So when we pulled all of those things in terms of income, uh, I dedicated every single penny that I ever got into the, the construction of this Formula 1 car. I think that's too difficult now because you'd be laughed at. I just don't understand why it's impossible to get some 
uh, new blood. And really, I suppose Jordan is one of the last teams, certainly, uh, to win Grand Prix. It's certainly one of the last teams, and that's far, far too long ago. So I think we need help. I think the teams themselves and Liberty needs to go out there and encourage even maybe... I'm not saying a junior class because no one wants to start in racing disadvantaged, but I'm not sure that there's many teams that would want to start in Formula One like it was in 91 when there was 38 cars on the grid. And I remember in Mexico, never, half the places we didn't have a garage till we qualified. And we were out on the grass and Bernie made it really difficult for us because he wanted to, as he often said to me, he said, Jordan, I needed to harden you up for the big road in front. And he did. He made it really difficult. And I'm not sure there's many teams now or sponsors who would want to be on the grass uh, on the side of the fence in Silverstone or uh, <laughs> Mexico. I, I remember particularly well. We were lucky to be in the whole in the city at all because <laughs> we were so far away from the grid. It was ridiculous. But, you know, there are things you learn and it makes you want to do for the first part of 91. We had to pre-qualify. Yep. So, yep. Roberto, you will remember you had the, the, the Michelin... Uh, we, we, I forget, we were on Goodyear's, but the Pirellis in the cold crispness of the morning were obviously that little bit better. So the, 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 the Pirelli-run cars had an advantage at that particular given time in the day. And yeah, um, so it was always a job. But thankfully, we got through all of those in our fourth race, I think. We went to Canada and um, uh, uh, the Chesras finished fourth and and Gasho finished fifth. I mean, that was remarkable times when you think about all of the teams that were there and the greatness of the great McLarens, the great, I mean, Williams was just in a different league altogether. Uh, Ferrari were much stronger than they currently are, which is disappointing for them. But the fact is to finish fourth and fifth in our fourth race was something quite special. And, and that meant that in the second half of the season, we hadn't, didn't have to pre-qualify. I think young teams and young entrepreneurs are not prepared to risk the amount of money that you would need to do to get it set up. And I think you would need 100 million at least in the bin to get things started and to attract people like the Gary Andersons of this world. Um, to, because without a designer, you're, you're destroyed. Uh, unless you can do a deal with a major team and try and see if you can collaborate and get some technology benefit from the other things but that seems to be a gray area at the moment as to what you can and can't do as we've recently yeah. seen with yeah, with racing right. point and, uh, and and mercedes so we don't want to go into that but nevertheless i do believe that i think there's a responsibility on some of the bigger teams and in particular must i say you know maybe you can't criticize red bull because they've got their second team but i think somebody like mercedes yes they do give engines and that's so vital and they do an amazing job on that but there's such a raft of technology that is all no longer appropriate for them. I think if they could find a way of supporting a team and giving something that could give a sort of a leg up to a new uh, exciting group of people because the problem is we're all getting older and we need our sport to get younger. That's the problem. And we need the major players to, to give uh, their part and um, you know try and encourage the youth people like Roberto you've just said because it's a shame. There is no new teams coming, and we desperately need them. Do you think that Formula One, Eddie, is is weaker in a way now uh, in terms of its strength and depth that is relying so much on the manufacturers like Mercedes and others? You know, if they decide to pull out, and as we've seen with Honda, what 
you know, what, how is it different from what it was before? Well, you know, I had it, 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 it was a big shock to me. You mentioned Honda there and I had Honda and um, they didn't necessarily pull out. They just went to BAR because of the, there were certain pressures on them um, with uh, Lucky Strike had promised to uh, support them and their program in Formula One with Villeneuve, etc. Um, and I, I was stuck. So uh, I was stuck until Ford came along and um, Ford had been the dominant uh, manufacturer in the old, old days when they were all DFEs. But, um, but to be fair, when Ford announced that they were stopping in Formula One, which was a massive shock for me, and please remember, I just... Their last ever win uh, was with Fisichella in 2003 um, in Brazil. And for me then, for 2004, to go out and try and find an engine, this was scary, scary times. And um, I think the manufacturers uh, have different pressures. They have uh, an advisory board, they've got a main board, uh, they've got shareholders, they've got directors, and there's a lot more pressures, whether it be fiscal ones with banking concerns, institutionally, uh, perception, and they will flow with what they feel is best for them. They have very little interest in Formula One per se, or Formula One is not going to have uh, a very major decision-making uh, part of their operation. Having said that, Mercedes seems to be a little bit different. But I've been castigated recently for saying that I do believe, and I think it's just about to happen, that I think Mercedes will stop in the names that we know them. Um, I, I do believe Ineos will become um, the main owner and indeed sponsor and uh, the main protagonist in, in, in that group of people. Um, so manufacturers. Look, Norman, it, it's been always that way. People come and go. I remember when Lamborghini were there, La Russe was there. We had all sorts of different things. Mart uh, Minardi, as we, we knew them, are not there anymore. Jordan, as we knew them, not. It's, it's time passing. It, it's life. It happens. Some things come, some things go. And maybe around the corner, there, there's a better scenario. But I personally was hugely saddened um, that Honda have announced that they're stopping. Because I, I, I was really critical of, of McLaren at the days when um, Alonso and, and Zach Brown made it really difficult for Honda to continue and, and blame them profusely for the, the failures that McLaren had. And let's be honest, McLaren had equally as many failures as Honda had. It was not one-sided, even though they tried to portray that. I was correct. really crucial. Absolutely critical. correct. I think that's really unfair. And I, I said openly when I was doing um, the Channel 4 programs with DC and Mark Webber, I said, guys, M McLaren will rue the day that they have f given up on 100 million pounds worth of sponsorship, free engines and the support. I have won races with Honda. I can tell you the passion that these people have it's probably not known, it's probably not understood how much what these people do. And the loss of Honda to Formula One for me is a huge loss. And I cannot imagine what's happening and the conversations uh, that Christian Horner and Adrian Newey and, uh, and Didi Matasic and the various people at Red Bull must be going through because they, they, they have given up all sorts. Uh, and, you know to go with Honda, to start winning with Honda, and, and you, you know, 
the recent wins that they had with both of their teams, I was so excited. I was so pleased, I have to tell you, because you get bored of the same situation happening all the time. No disrespect to Mercedes. I absolutely love what they do, and hats off to Toto and everyone in that team because they're just a machine. But it's nice to see somebody new winning. And um, that's why I think somebody needs to come in. But is somebody going to come in? I think we need to be careful that we don't lose Renault either because um, Renault can't continue being beaten by Mercedes in the way that they are. Now, I know they're planning for future drivers and futures. Fernando coming back, which is a question as well. But who's to know what's happening? But I think the manufacturers have themselves to blame. Because uh, they spend, 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 spend until it's impossible for anyone else to compete against them. And in particular, going back to your previous question, if you're talking about bringing a new team, there's no manufacturer who's going to go and sign up to a new team in the hope of doing well. It didn't happen in my day. I went and paid for my DFE, normal Ford engines, did a, a finished fifth in a championship, but I was bankrupt. And, and Bernie got me the engine with, with uh, um, Yamaha. And had that not happened, I would not be here. I would have been skint. There's no doubt about it. So there's a lot of things that went from me. But the manufacturer saved my life in the end. You mentioned Bernie. And I, I just wanted to sort of bring you back a little bit to... You mentioned you had 10 drivers, too, in, that, that you were managing. And you were one of the innovators in, in the sport in the sense of managing drivers. Um, I remember once I bumped into you in Oxford, I think it was Browns, and you were sitting at a table with a whole bunch of young drivers. Um, and, and I remember Bernie telling me when I was still a journalist to, to look out for you because a very, very good young French driver was going to turn up, and you've told us about that. So I just wanted to explore a little bit the relationship that you, you, you also had with Bernie. You mentioned Yamaha, and also the, the fact that you managed drivers, because at the time, I don't think that was very common, was it? Well, it was an income, wasn't it? It was a source of income because other people never paid. You know, drivers were such a, a, an instrumental part. If you cast, well, certainly Roberto will remember being Italian. Um, in particular, you know, Stefan Johansson, Jean Alessi, Michael Schumacher, Irvine, Barrichello, Fisichella, there's six for starters, they were all Jordan connected and I still had an agreement with them. They all happened to wind up in Ferrari because Ferrari paid the most money. I mean, there's no secret <laughs> there. <laughs> so you could say Ferrari was probably my single greatest benefactor uh, of all time because I sold them. But I, I see the point in, in Formula 3 and in Formula 3000, I had a, a whole raft of young drivers that had been coming, you, you know, people don't always remember Martin Donnelly until he had that incredible crash, but it was such an unbelievable talent he was. Um, and there was, you know, Damon was around and, and Johnny Herbert was around and then there was Alessi, but there was lots of other people around. And in, I, I, Ralph Schumacher was a driver, even though he didn't start to drive for me at that stage, and, and Irvine was in Formula 3000. I farmed them all out to Japan because the Japanese Formula 2 championship was a very professional program. And as a result, um, we were um, able to charge 200, 300, 400,000 a year for these young drivers to do the full championship. And, and part of the deal for getting that was a small cut of that went back to the Jordan Racing, and Jordan, which went into a pot which was used to develop various things, particularly for Formula One. So I have never had any qualms of conscience about... Um, 
you know, requesting if I get you into a position, this is what you need to pay back to the team because they've, they've, and we were also the first team in the case of Johnny Herbert, for example, he, he didn't have one bean, not a bean. And I said, okay, Johnny, forget about the money. I'll raise the money for you. I will pay for all of this, which was very unusual in, in Formula 3 and 3000. I'll pay for the lot, but you will have to pay it back in a form over a number of years as I believe your career will, will progress. And the same thing happened with Brundle, and that's how it happened. So I always got the money back. But I'd, I'd got the sponsorship as well. So I got the sponsorship and the money back. So it was, a, a, if you like, a, a whammy. But no one could begrudge any team for doing that because that's exactly um, the graft that I had to do to make sure I got it. And you mentioned that the support that Bernie would give and you mentioned the Yamaha engine. How, how was your relationship with him and how, how did he support you? And, and, and how did you use that relationship? Use is the wrong word, but you know, how did you enjoy that relationship? Abuse. Um, <laughs> well, you didn't abuse, abuse anything with Bernie because if you did, he would absolutely stuff you. There's no doubt. You don't want to have a head-to-head -head with him in terms of combat. Um, there's only ever going to be one winner, and that's been shown so many times in the history of Formula One. Um, you might think that you could, and but he was the master of a tactician, wasn't he? Divide and rule. That's what he always did. He 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 get the manufacturers and the private teams fighting against each other, so as he could take from both sides. I mean, he was a, he's a genius, in in my opinion. But I am naturally biased, and I'm I'm proud of the time that I had with him. But. Um, how did I use him? Every way I could. I mean, I borrowed left, right and center from him. And, um, but, you know, he was crafty. He used to always take it back out of future TV money. And then I'd say to him, what's this? Why is that deducted? He said, that's the interest, you idiot. I thought you were a banker. I said, well, that's not really. That was never described at the time. You cheapskate. How can you charge me 10% and the bank raises too or something like that? Are you having me over here, Bernie? And he loved a little bit of combat. He said, let me, oh, come on. We'll go around the corner for a coffee and, and we go down and have a bit of lunch. And, you know, he, he ate food like a sparrow. You, you wouldn't see what he, he had to eat. But we would discuss all the trials and tribulations of, um, of life. But, you know, I enjoyed so much because... We can all sit here and think about we've all had great careers through Formula One, but had it not been for Bernie taking a minority sport and building it into what he did do, the, yeah, the yeah. man, there's nobody in this world, and I've, I've met some really good people through all sorts of different types of businesses. Uh, I've never met somebody with the visionary sense that he had uh, and has. Uh, because he's still scheming away. He's 90 this month. He's just been a father. I mean, Christ Almighty, he, he's done things that we don't even, even dream about. So uh, how he manages all this in the same day, I don't know. So Eddie Jordan, he does know a lot about Formula One. And so we thought we'd ask him what he really felt about Mercedes. Oh, um, my, my, my real worry, when you have a team um, so great and so brilliant and so technically advanced, but also with great, great skill, uh, like Mercedes. And I'm applauding them here because quite clearly they are the class above. Um, but, you know, you also have to be a little bit careful if you were Mercedes. At, at what stage do you get a decline in terms of uh, value for their investment? Um, you get to the point of, uh, you know, the diminishing return uh, of for five, six years, they have created such 
uh, a success story. What they've done with Lewis and what Lewis has done with them is simply remarkable. And I do believe um, at the end of this year, I, I do believe we'll all be able to say, actually, you know, Lewis is the greatest driver of all time. Having said that, I think, back to where we were, I think the board at Mercedes or any other team that would be in the position of Mercedes would have to question, why are we still doing this? We're only repeating what we've done for the last six years. We're not getting the same value. Let's stop, do something else, and then come back to Formula One because that's what they do. But, you know, I think that's also bad for Formula One because what we need is continuity. We, we needed the Frank Williams. We needed, dare I say, you know, the Jordan or the, the, the Tom Walkinshaws or uh, the, the LaRusses or Lafitte or you know, Liges, Minardis, all of those teams, they were all iconic names to me. And I felt that by seeing and seeing the owner, of it, I felt that, you know, we were talking, Bernie always used to say at the Formula One uh, meetings, nobody except the actual team principal is allowed in the, in, in the room. And um, he got the team principals there. And I remember poor old, uh, you know, Ron Dennis used to bring Martin Whitmarsh. And I remember an embarrassing situation where Whitmarsh was asked to leave, despite the fact that he was the CEO there. And, um, but that's how Bernie was. He said he wants decision makers, uh, not yes men. And I mean, which was pretty cruel, really, um, because a CEO is not a yes man. But nevertheless, in his view, that's what it was. He wanted the team principals there. And that was his idea, his structure. Formula One. Formula One has changed a lot despite um, his best efforts. Um, but is it as good? You know, I'm biased. I'm going to say I think I love Formula One beyond anything. Um, but I just enjoyed the time that I was there. But then I was closer to it. Well, you know, it's, it's lovely to talk to you because you, you always have um, a very mischievous side to you. Uh, you always had, and it's one of the reasons why Jordan was such a popular team, apart from you being so so popular as a person, obviously. Is that something that you, you want to bring to, to what you do in the sport and your TV commentary? A bit of, it's not lightness, because obviously you're a super bright guy, but a, de, demystifying things a little bit, making things a little bit less complicated, making them more enjoyable. Well, in terms of commentary, I probably have been accused of spending more time on trying to find the next scoop or the next thing that no one really has worked out or has seen. Um, and I enjoy it. For me, that's kind of skullduggery, isn't it? I mean, it's trying to... Uh, and I'm the master of skullduggery. No, I don't say I'm the master. There's lots of great people who employ skullduggery. But I, I have to have some form of aggravation every day to make myself feel good. But listen, the person who is the master... And far, far worse than me, or better, whichever way you like to call it, is Bernie. Because he was the one who used to create all sorts of mischief just to divert any sort of uh, questions or uh, remarks that may be coming. And you know, you, you did as press for many, many years. And, and you know, uh, Bernie was a... He was just a master of, of those sort of things. But I, I enjoy it, not because of he did it, but I enjoy it because it's always been my way right from the very beginning. I like, I like, I like tormenting people, let's put it that way. <laughs> Should I admit to that? No, maybe not. But anyway, it's quite good. Tormenting in a nice way is the thing from tormenting them in, in a bad way. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. 
Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So Eddie has told us how he, he had drivers uh, uh, on his roster, which uh, also helped him pay the bills. And he obviously had a talent for, for managing drivers. But I just wondered also if he had a talent for, for finding and spotting new drivers. Actually, when I think back, if, if that race that you were at, in, in um, it wasn't Magna Cour, it was um, uh, Le Castellet and Le French Castellet. Grand Prix in 89. Um, you know, you talked, Norman talked about different drivers, but also in that race, I don't know, I, I, Emmanuelle Piro in, in the minority. I think I had Martin Donnelly in the Lotus and, I, and, and all, all just on one-off races. And I was copping a little bit of the cash from each of the three. I mean, it was a, a miracle day for me. Uh, and then for... Um, as you rightly say, Alessi made himself a star and got a, a permanent seat with, with Tyrrell the following year. Um, drivers. Look, I think drivers was different. I, I was the first, I think, to my knowledge, of having... There was a guy, Jim Wright, which I, I, I put into Jordan, uh, Eddie Jordan Management, which he spent his time on the road looking at different drivers all the way through. And I remember him coming back from Snedderton one day where he'd been watching a Formula 4 2000, which we normally never would watch too much into that because it was either Formula 4 straight into Formula 3, three th- Formula 3 if you were really good enough, like somebody like, like Prost or PK went straight into Formula 1. Most normal people went through then to Formula 2 or got sucked into other different things. However, um, Jim Wright came back and he said, look, this guy is quite staggering, amazing. And I said, mm, yeah, okay, I'll have a look. And I remember driving down to Snetterton to see this guy test. He was in a Van Diemen and Ralph Furman, who married to an Irish girl, and we, we, we had a coffee and then I went out privately. I didn't say what I was doing. And I, I, I remember looking at one of the quick corners in Snetterton, which is a great test circuit, um, and, and this guy could hit the mark that I had in my eye as to where his front wheel would hit every time. And I, I just thought looking at the watch was a secondary thing, but looking at the style and the way he behaved in the car and how the confidence that he had. So I went up to him, and he couldn't speak English. And um, I said to him, look, this is 1982, guys. And I said to him, uh, I'd like to try you in my Formula 3 car. 
uh, why don't you come to Silverstone next Wednesday? Uh, we're testing there, but we have a race first. And as it happened, James Weaver had the car on pole position, our car, uh, in, in, in Formula 3. So we knew that this particular car that he was going to drive was in very good shape. So he arrived in the afternoon. He couldn't do the morning. He arrived in the afternoon of the Wednesday. And within about 15 or 20 laps uh, on old tires, he was matching the time that James had done in the pole. And I'm saying, this is ridiculous. No one can do this in the afternoon because in the Formula 3, some people may know uh, the airbox and stuff. As the day gets warmer, the times get slower. But this guy was every bit as quick. And when we put the new tires on the car, which financially I didn't want to do because I didn't want to have to pay for them, but um, I did. And he, he beat the time that we'd been on pole position. Um, that, for me, is how Ayrton Senna, because he dropped the name from the Silva, mm. and after winning in Macau with Dick Bennett's in the Marlborough team where we were joined together, there was uh, Roberto Guerrero, there was Marcel, um, Martin Brundle, and, uh, and Ayrton Senna. Uh, we went to Macau as the Marlborough team, and um, so we won there. And um, Senna went on then, as you probably know, went on to drive for Tolman. Now, for me, he, he was such, such a magic person. Uh, complex, but nevertheless magic. And he had that r fabulous uh, Brazilian way about him. Uh, and then, of course, in 91, we had Michael Schumacher. So people often think which of those two were the best. And I always, until we say, we're not talking about Lewis just at the moment. So uh, I would always say, listen, I'm going to surprise you because in my opinion... Uh, it's neither of those two. And I would always say that I would always reach out that little bit more for Alan Prost. And the reason why I say that, which confuses a lot of people, he won four world titles. He also lost one by half a point, and he won lost another. I could be wrong. Uh, Norman, you would know the figures, but I think he lost another championship by one point. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, he never worried about whose teammate was. He didn't decide. He wasn't that. He was political, but not in that way. So he could have anyone in the car, and he drove. Uh, he didn't have in a contract, for example, um, that he had the right to be able to uh, ask the other driver to give way to him and stuff like that, as we know a certain one of those two drivers did. Um, and, and, and that's why I'm inclined to go for Prost. He, he didn't mind who he was with. He didn't mind what he went on. And I think he has stood the test of time. Um, for all sorts of reasons, we no longer have the pleasure of having Ayrton on this planet. And, and, and we know that Michael has been ill now for a very long time. So the great thing, and I'm not just saying that because I'm able to go cycling with, with Alan, but Alan is just the normal guy, and he is a great ex-champion, and I think if you talk about drivers, I'm talking about the person. And I think uh, Alan Prost gave so much back. He started his team in Formula 3, then he went to Formula 1 with the Ligier thing, and he took over that. Of course, he was wickedly political with Mitterrand and all sorts of things. I don't need to go through that sort of thing with you. But, you know, Alain Prost for me um, was uh, the best overall driver for everything or the best person for, for motorsport that I can recall. It's interesting what you say because it's, it's, it's so much as the human side, as the best person for motorsport, I think, is a lovely way of, of describing it. I, I want to take you back to, well... Two people, really. Well, one forwards and one backwards. I'm going to take you back to maybe Michael, because obviously you are a great, great talent spotter. And in fact, you had a team of talent spotters out there, which I think is wonderful, just like football teams have. Yeah. And I think that's where you're, a, and again, once again, an innovator. And so I want to ask you about Michael and just 
to, to take us through that, I know the story has been told many times, but I don't think I've ever heard of Freem Mew directly. You know, when you spotted him, I remember Ian Phillips actually, sp I spoke to him when I was still on the Sunday Times saying, we've tested this amazing guy. I mean, and, you know, obviously you know who it is. So I'd like to have your view of, of Michael. And, 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 and but secondly, also, I'd like to have your view on, on Lewis, because again, like Alan, is he a very good person for motorsport? All the other things that he does, does it help motorsport? So a two-part question. Sorry to be so long. Um, no, that's quite all right. I hope I can remember them both. Um, <laughs> so uh, the first one, remind me again, was, uh, uh, was Michael. And um, look, uh, Michael's situation, Michael would not have ever driven for George. So I, I don't want to, uh, to, to claim um, so much credit for this because Bertrand Gachot made a mistake when he was in the taxi and um, he, he sprayed mace and it, I was absolutely staggered that he was sent to jail by the judge I, I, and um, we are good friends now uh, there wasn't there was a time that we weren't but you know he now understands the various sides that I had to look at at the time anyway he went to jail and we had about four days, five days, to get a new driver. And I remember very clearly, um, I had a choice. And, you know, it comes down to money. Um, I had a choice. I either went with Stefan Johansson, who had been my teammate when I was driving Formula 3 in the late 70s or the mid-70s. Um, and he was out of a drive, so I could put him in the car, and I knew that would be a very safe bet for Spa. Um, and then, on the other hand, I had been... Oh, for six, seven months, um, I had been going on. Gerhard, uh, Gert Kramer from Mercedes had been going on and on and on about this guy, uh, Michael Schumacher. Now, I, I had previously, when he was doing Formula 3, I had gone to see him when he was driving the Willy Weber team. And yes, he was very good. Um, but we have to remember that there was, the, the, there was also Heinz Harald Frenzen at the time, and there's arguably that Frenzen was quicker than him, certainly in the sports car and the Sauber, the Mercedes Sauber car um, uh, going forward. So um, overall, I'd have to say that the, the, the reason why Michael got the drive for me at Spa was $150,000. Uh, being cruel about it. Uh, if he hadn't got that money from uh, Sauber, which the money, of course, came from Mercedes, um, would he have got the drive? No, he would not. So full credit. Eddie, to we, Eddie, sorry, we were told $1 million by then. Uh, I think it was 100 But you know how, how stories improve as they go along. <laughs> don't let, million don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Roberto, come on, you're Italian. You're the past master of all of this kind of carry-on. <laughs> Soon we'd be saying it was $10 million. Sadly, I know what I had because I had it in a bag. And, um, <laughs> and I'm not sure I could have ever seen a million pounds in a bag, but anyway. So um, the reality was, you know, m more money came as a result of various different things. But anyway, he, he drove the car in the qualifying. And I remember uh, Norman, uh, alongside Ian Phillips, where I worked in the same office as Ian, um, yeah. um, there was Trevor Foster who was managing this particular test yes. uh, and it was a Wednesday and there's a very funny story about this actually if you really have the time to listen to it but there's a funny story about we had to get him to drive the car because he'd never driven a Formula 1 car before and um, 
Silverstone was fully booked. And I said, gee, who's on? Come on, I need to get on there. I need to get on. Who's So they said, oh, well, you know the guy, but I can't let you find out. So I found out that it was a brand new Porsche by none other than Nick Faldo was doing a test in his <coughs> own car, the fame of the golfer who won all those majors. And alongside him um, was a guy who also was using the track, was none other than our old great friend called Chris Rea. And um, I had to concoct and find a way of allowing them to give up their time on the circuit for me to be able to try this new driver called Michael something or other. And I can promise you, I didn't know how to spell his name at the time. So he's in the car. Um, and by the way, what I had to give, Nick Faldo has a history that he has driven a Jordan Formula One car around Silverstone. Oh, and wow. that was his payoff. But he had to sit <laughs> in it sideways. He's such a big man. But um, we often laugh and joke about it because he's a car fanatic. Anyway, back to Michael Schumacher. And, and Trevor, because I was sort of letting him get on with it, I wouldn't have been at the test anyway. And Trevor rings and says, uh, Eddie, will you please check with Silverstone Sid that the barriers and the cones are in exactly the same place? Because what this guy is doing, times-wise, is simply just not real. Something is not right. And um, I just said, well, check the tires. You know, what tires is he on? Is he on the softs? Da, 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 da. And usual old stuff. And he said, look, Eddie, believe me, this, these times are ridiculous. And uh, I rang Silverson, said, I rang up Silverson. He said, the cones have to be marked on a certain place. He said, you have no doubt what the circuit you've got is the circuit that is used time and time. And it's at that stage that we realized, wow, let me have a look at that timesheets and everything and the times, one following the other. He was just so much better in a Formula One car than he ever was in a sports car or in a Formula Three car. It's quite remarkable how people adapt to that extra power, the extra speed. And Michael had that magic touch instantly. Just mm. amazing. And really, you know, the car was okay, but it was nothing special, but he went to Spa. He also then told me a blatant lie. As I said to him, oh, okay, he's from Kirpin, so it was just across the border. I said to him, uh, look, Michael, Spa, it's a really, really tricky place. Have you, have you been here before? And uh, he said, yeah, 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 I've been here. Yeah, of course. But what, he lied to me. He said he'd been there, but he didn't race there. This was his no, first ever race. He lied to me. Can you imagine lying to me? <laughs> anyway, he was probably just getting his own back on me. Um, so that was a little fib. So for him to qualify seventh in a place that he'd never seen, such an arduous circuit to learn. In those days, Eau Rouge was just out of this question. It was a lift, and then you had to plant your foot. Now the cars are so good, I think most of them are getting through there absolutely flat, and um, which disappoints me because... I, that was, you know, just such a magical, a magical circuit anyway, because it had a lot of great memories for me, uh, particularly if any circuit had something special, it was always Spa. And um, so from that point of view, uh, Michael Schumacher, so it was huge disappointment. But I remember Bernie, and it's only now that I appreciate, he said, Jordan, you cannot, you will be lucky to be in business next year. You cannot hold somebody like him back. Let me get you some money for him and let me um, send him up. And I still didn't want to do it because I, I'm pretty brutal like that. Um, so I fought it in the courts and thankfully the honorable judge in, in Milan saw my way and he, he made Briatore pay. And there's nothing more <laughs> pleasant than making Briatore pay, is there, guys? I know he was on your show last week. That doesn't make him a nice guy, you know. <laughs> 
We love everybody, Eddie. We love everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I asked you about Lewis too, because going back to what you said about Alan being an all-rounder for the sport, you know, Lewis, fact that, that you know, you, you know, you love music, obviously, and, and Lewis is involved in music, he's involved in fashion, he's involved in all kinds of things, he's involved in politics too. What do you think of that? Is, is that good for the sport? It's obviously good for him, and that's what makes him tick. But what about the sport? Wow, it's a fabulously complex question. We've seen uh, what Lewis can do. We applaud, or I applaud, um, Ron Dennis uh, and Lewis's family and his father for having the conviction and the courage to do what he has, you know, all the way through from karting at seven years of age uh, and then McLaren taking a punt with him. That was hugely brilliant. And again, as I said, I applaud what they did. Um, and particular, um, because he was a black kid, and that must have been so, yeah. so difficult. And, you know, being such a good friend of Anthony, his father's, and know where he comes from. If ever there's been one person who could do something on a worldwide uh, basis, and I think what Lewis is becoming really popular now in the States, which has not been the case with Formula One for many, many, uh, uh, never. And so he's the one person who could... Uh, break that stronghold of all of those American sports. I, I think Lewis has that in his power. And, and does he see it that way? I think he must do. He's spending more time, as you mentioned there, about the music and the rapping and his friends and various other aspects. Where he will go after this, I think he will grow in stature. And I, I know I wouldn't want to subject him to it, but I would like him to see at some stage a season in Ferrari because I think there's something very special about Ferrari. I have a love affair with Ferrari and I would always like great drivers to wind up or be in Ferrari at some stage. Um, and, and, and I think Ayrton Senna probably would have done that after Williams had he been alive um, but I, we know that Michael went there, we know that Prost was there and I think I would like Lewis to spend a season at Ferrari, uh, hopefully in Ferrari in a better shape, but then he would bring the people and he would have the expertise that I think he could make Ferrari great. I really do. And I think, would they be a championship contender? Well, I think he's that good a driver um, that he would, but then he'd be up against a lot of young, new talent. And we don't need to speak about Max because for sure we know how unbelievably quick he is. And he will be a, a source of, uh, of annoyance to Lewis over the years to come because he is that good. But then we don't know what Honda's doing and we certainly don't know what Red Bull is doing. So there's a lot of cards playing into Lewis's hand. Um, I just, nevertheless, if I was his boss, um, Toto must have uh, his hands and eyes full looking at different media things and I want to know where is the focus and, and then we can get on to seeing uh, another side of, of Lewis because first and foremost his, his main task his main uh, function for being on this world at the moment is to be the greatest racing driver of all time and he has that in his grasp but there are just a couple of things that needs to happen and then he's there he's there beyond any doubt in my opinion I, th I think, Eddie, th there's also the point that um, Lewis, you, you mentioned dimin diminishing returns uh, earlier on in this podcast and uh, you know, applied to Mercedes, but I think that applies to Lewis too. You know, there is this horrible turnoff factor that people also had when Michael was winning and, and even when McLaren was winning so much. Oh, who's on pole, Lewis? Oh, okay. Oh, yet again. Oh, okay. So the di that's one of the difficulties you may have as, as in terms of cutting through to, to, to the media. 
uh, and to and to popularity. But also, do you think that Formula One, you mentioned young people before, is less sexy and less cool than maybe MotoGP, but also the up and coming maybe Formula E? You know, the pressures on young drivers now are different. Uh, you know, what drivers used to do and, you know, we don't want to go back into the, the Nicky's frame because that's where I, I, I was around. Um, I was a, a very, very average driver in the Marlborough program, probably the worst they've ever had. But anyway, I was there and I had, you know, around me was people like Nicky Lauda and Emerson, um, but in particular, James Hunt. And then James gave me his brother, David, to drive in Formula Ford, uh, which was when I just started set up the team. So um, I knew these guys. But if you're talking about charisma of those guys and charisma of the current guys, well, there's just they're not even on the same level. And um, that's not to say that the guys now couldn't be like that. It's just they're not allowed to be like that. And you yeah. just wouldn't get away with it. I mean, you're not going to walk around nightclubs at two and three o'clock in the morning drinking and smoking uh, cigarettes and like James did and come out and then win a Grand Prix and then win a world championship. Uh, and then whilst a lot of people thought that there was a lot of animosity between uh, Nicky and, and James, but there never was. There was a height of respect for each other. And um, I, I would say that... Uh, of all the people that I owe uh, the biggest favor uh, alongside Jean, um, and in fact, probably more so than Jean in lots of different ways, would be Nicky Lauda, because he knew I was the same age as him. Uh, I'd come into racing and joined the Marlborough team. I got picked there, which was like a complete freak. I don't know how that happened, but anyway, thankfully it did. Um, but I had studied before because that's the way Ireland was, that, you know, get your, get your education sorted first. So I was very late into that Formula 3 bracket, and Nicky, I remember saying to me many times, he said, Eddie, look, I've just won world championships and, and, and you know, you're here trying to make a big start. Uh, please think about running a team because you have the fiscal ability, you have a good commercial now, and you've got an ability with, with people and finding young drivers. Uh, my guess is start and set up a team. So it was on his pure advice because I thought about it and I thought, this guy really knows what he's talking about. What a most magical person. Uh, Nicky Lauda was... And, and extraordinary sad at his funeral. But I owe him so much because initially he gave me uh, the idea of actually setting up a Formula 4 team and, and then Formula 3. So um, I'm not sure drivers are in a position to do that. You know, at that stage, drivers were close. It's very hard to get close to drivers now. But having said that, um, you know, I cycle regularly in Monaco with, with Coulthard and Mark Webber and then Max will come out and then sometimes, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of different people. Um, Leclerc was out the other day and, and, and the, the pe person who kills us all, who's the best climber of all, is, is Prost at his age. I mean, he, he, can, he can ride uh, a bicycle not far off the pro level, I mean, even at this stage. So... Where are the next group of drivers coming from that's going to have that ability to swagger around the place? But before you actually ask that question, I think you need to find out, would that be acceptable? Could you imagine James Hunt being in, 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 in a team with Toto? I don't think it would happen, would it? I mean, no. it'd be great fun, 
Jeez, it wouldn't last very long, would it? <laughs> I mean, it'd be the death knell. It'd be it'd short about two You know, I had Irvine in the car, and he drove me to distraction, even though I knew exactly what he was going to do, because he was Irish, and he thought the same way as me. But he was a complete nightmare. But the, the problem was, the two of us were quite similar, and we were watching each other. He was trying to steal from me, and I was certainly trying to steal from him. So <laughs> there, was, there was no winner there. Last question for me, Eddie, please. Shower. Just a very personal, very personal question mark. Uh, after Lewis, that means before Lewis, for you, who have been the greatest ever? Considering one thing, Enzo Ferrari, who you knew, always said about the champion curve. That means that when a driver gets very wealthy, very much winning, maybe husband, maybe father, he gets less i mean, it gets lower, simply slower. Did you meet somebody who didn't get slower? Senna didn't have the time to show that, but who else? Great question, but if I may, and, and don't be embarrassed by it, I, I'll make a little analogy here to, to Italians, because it's the same question that you've got. Um, and that is that, i think the Italian boys and the great drivers that we've seen, Italians, I mean, I'm going to ask you, when was the last Italian to be world champion? Well, the answer is 1953, Ascari. And that's a ridiculous length of time to have such a great nation with such a great folklore and a great history of motorsport in their blood. You can talk about Ferrari if you like, but that is a manufacturer and they never really did it with with. Italian drivers. So the fact is that I think Italian boys, and I'd probably be killed for what I'm going to say, but they're too soft and they've been brought up too soft by the, the, the mother. Ah, bellissimo, the bambina. And, da, 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 da. and you know, it's, it's, it, I think the boys in Italy, they're not tough enough, they're not hard enough, and they need to really square up to themselves because I promise you, Michael Schumacher had it tough. Uh, Lewis Hamilton has had it tough. And all of the great drivers that have been there, in my opinion, uh, need, need to harden themselves up. I could say possibly Damon Hill. But, you know, Damon Hill's father was a double world champion. So to come himself, um, to come out and win a world title with, uh, um, with Williams. However, where he was fantastic, he did his first ever drive in a Formula 3 car with me in Donington in 85. And for then, all of those years later, to come back in, in, in 88, 98, um, to come back to Spa and win for me there, I'll never forget that because that will always be one of the, the, the best moments of my life, not just because I'd won the Grand Prix, but the, one of the best moments because I, I felt I was there at the beginning, way back in uh, 85, and here we were some... 13 years later, winning a Grand Prix. So that was something special. However, when Damon decided that he was going to stop, for sure, he got slower. Make no mistake. And uh, I think he would probably say that. But he had achieved everything that he wanted to achieve. But, you know, he was clever. He wanted to stay around. He wanted to be alive. He wanted to be able to enjoy his championship. And, and sadly, Senna hasn't been able to do that. And sadly... Uh, Michael hasn't been able to do that. And I think part of the whole thing is, is in life, you must know when to enter and when to, uh, to leave. And when, when you've made that decision, you have to be really strong because some people want to stay beyond the 
best for date. And, and so they, they go on and on and on and without thinking about where the exit here. I mean, it applies to not just buying and selling shares. It talks about a house. It talks about a wife. It talks about kids. A, you, you need to know when to come into something, but it's so important to know when to exit from that as well. Before we finished, Eddie had something to add. Can I just please say one thing that is a possible shining light for the possible future and something that will... I, I think a magic decision in being able to get Stefano Domenicali back into, uh, uh, into Formula One. Um, I applaud that decision. Uh, I've been a huge fan of his when he was growing up under Todd and then with, with Ross Braun. All, all of those years that he spent his apprenticeship um, in... Uh, in Ferrari of course Roberto you, you are a particularly good pal of his and it's a great success story for him to leave um, to go to Audi from Audi to promote him into Lamborghini to do I mean when you look at the success story of the sales uh, that's going on in Lamborghini this guy has he's had his hands his pulse has been on the success that's going on there in a very difficult market selling this kind of car into the market, but also making a Lamborghini into such a, a, a responsible and, and high-quality product, which it wasn't always known for, but it is now. And it has come under Stefano's domain, and the fact that he's going to take over from Chase Carey was a surprise for me. It was a surprise. Yes, I did know before it was announced, but um, not long enough beforehand to actually release it or make a big issue about it. And I, I didn't believe it was going to happen. That was probably why I didn't release it or mention it, because I thought that it would be too hard a struggle for him to leave Lamborghini, a great Italian name, and one of the great names uh, in the automotive industry. And so anyway, I give him my blessing. I hope he will instigate new opportunities. He certainly knows the business from the ground up. Um, he knows about the tires, he knows about the manufacturers, he knows about the cars, the teams, the drivers. Uh, I think it's a, it's a breath of fresh air and I wish him every success. At the end, Eddie went on to talk about a friend of his and a media colleague, former driver David Coulthard. You, you, can't, you can't cycle with DC because he wants to stop. When everyone is having coffees, he has beers. I mean, he's a nightmare. And if he's not having him beers, he, he's having Jägermeisters. Uh, he's, he's a disaster. Believe me, there should be a health warning attached to that man in every shape and form. He's still my favorite. He's still my favorite person, with no disrespect to you great guys. But in this new area of the media and the TV and stuff, there, he is absolutely magical. It is a laugh a moment. He is so goddamn funny. But when you see him on the screen, you think he couldn't possibly say anything bad. Believe me, that is not the David Coulthard that you should see. It's a pity he wasn't a world champion because I, he'd be up there in my greatest drivers of all time because he's such a character. Eddie Jordan. What a character. The sport would certainly miss him if he wasn't around. Our thanks to Eddie Jordan and to you for listening. Please like, follow and subscribe to our podcast and listen out for more great names coming soon on Formula One's Upon a Time.